Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, good morning, WCC. It's wonderful to see everybody. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. We are continuing our sermon series from the book of Hebrews. And just for, for first-time guests or, or guests maybe even started coming in the last week, few weeks or so, uh, just as a reminder, one of the reasons we say the Lord's Prayer and we say Scripture together is for God's Word to go down in our hearts. Not just that we're, we're just passive, but we want to be active in in saying the word of God, so, so God will drive it in us. All right, so we are going through this series in Hebrews. Before I start, I want to give credit where credit is due. I've been helped tremendously by a commentator named George Guthrie and Pastor Rob Rayburn. Uh, I may not mention them each week, but they've been very helpful to me. All right, so the theme of Hebrews is this, that real faith, I say this every week, that real faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ is a persevering faith. It is one that, that lasts to the end. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing is encouraging us to persevere in our faith. And he starts out by saying, his argument, by saying that Jesus is the exalted one. That's what chapter 1 of Hebrews is all about, is that Jesus is the exalted king. And I don't know if you noticed this, but in our order of worship, this is the, the, in the church calendar. Today is the last Sunday after Pentecost. It's also what they call Christ the King Sunday. So we're celebrating the fact, we're remembering the fact that Jesus is the king. And that's why that, that reading from Daniel 7, that's why we had that. Because Jesus is the exalted king. And I'm just going to, I didn't plan on doing this, but I was thinking about that passage as George was reading it, where it says, one of the things it says, that says, one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and he was exalted on this throne. That's Jesus. He is the Son of Man exalted on the throne. He is the King, and He reigns. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. So what you see is throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, there's a consistent message that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the exalted King. All right, in, in, back in Hebrews, so in Hebrews, we're in chapter 2. Last time we got through verse 4, so this morning we're going to pick up in verse 5. And before we read this paragraph, so we're going to read this paragraph, verses 5 to 9, it's important to remember that this paragraph is really a transition paragraph. The the author is transitioning from talking about Jesus being the exalted king, and now he's transitioning to talking about Jesus being a man and Jesus being a suffering servant. So this little paragraph is a transition paragraph, talking about Jesus becoming a man and dying. Okay, so it's a transition from Jesus' exalted king to the suffering man. All right, let's read Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 9, and then we'll walk through the passage verse by verse. So this is Hebrews 2, beginning verse 5. It says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, 
namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So that's what we're going to cover today. So verse 5, it says, he starts out by saying, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. At this time, Jewish people believed that angels had been assigned by God to rule over the nations of the world. In fact, I meant to mention this last week in the order of of worship and the words of preparation. It came from Daniel 12. We've kind of been doing some readings from Daniel. And it says this in Daniel 12, 1. It says that at that time shall arise Michael, an archangel. It says, Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. So Michael, this lead angel, this archangel, is referred to as the great prince who watches over God's people, Israel. So Jewish folks in the first century, they believed that angels had been assigned by God to have charge over the nations. Okay? But what the author of Hebrews is saying here in verse 5, he says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So the author of Hebrews is saying that angels will not have a position of authority in the world to come. Angels will not be rulers in the coming age after Jesus returns and establishes the new earth. So again, the author, he said this over and over again, that Jesus is superior to angels. So the Jewish people who had rejected Jesus, they were saying that Jesus must be inferior to angels because Jesus was a man. But the author of Hebrews is saying, yes, Jesus is a man, but he's the God man. He's fully God and fully man. And he's the king and he will rule the world to come. Not angels. They're not going to rule the world to come. Jesus is. Now, the, the author quotes Psalm 8, and that's what begins there in verse 6. That's what the, your Bible may have it kind of set off as a paragraph. This is a passage from Psalm 8, and he begins in verse 6, just as a little side note. He says, it has been testified somewhere. He doesn't say Psalm 8. He just says it's been testified somewhere. Why does he do that? Well, I think that the writer is saying this. He's stressing the fact that it's God who is speaking. It's God who speaks through his word. It's scripture. So he doesn't, he, he's saying it really doesn't matter where it comes from. The author knows it's Psalm 8 because he quotes it perfectly. So he knows it. But he's saying it really doesn't matter about the human author. What matters is that God is speaking here. Then he quotes Psalm 8. So he says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. I'm going to read a little bit more of Psalm 8 to give you the context. The, the previous verse in Psalm 8, this is Psalm 8, verse 3, it says this, and you, probably, you may have heard this before. It says, when I look at your heavens, he's ta- the, the psalmist is talking to God, and he says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, then he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? So he's saying, when I look at the stars, when I think about what you've done, God, what what is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 8 is a beautiful psalm that expresses astonishment that God cares about us little humans. I've thought about this a lot. If you've ever looked at the night sky, I remember being out in Montana one time and looking at the night sky, and it was like, I'm pretty good at identifying some constellations. I couldn't pick out constellations because the whole Milky Way was this huge thing of stars. It was just incredible. And I remember thinking, what? why does God care about us? We're, we're a little speck on a little rock, right? Going around a medium-sized star. 
in a medium-sized galaxy, one of billions or whatever of galaxies. And yet God remembers us as humans. He cares about us. Because we're the only creatures in the entire universe made in God's image. And we're the only ones that were made in the image of God. So the psalmist is saying, isn't it amazing that God remembers us and he cares about us? He's saying, praise the Lord for his love for us. And the psalmist says, in Psalm 8, he's saying, God has put everything in the world in subjection to man. So of all the creatures on the earth, God has made man to be the highest authority. Back in Hebrews 2, verse 8, it says, Now I'm putting everything in subjection to him and to man. He left nothing outside his control. And then he says, At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So when we think about this, all these thoughts about, about creation being in subjection to man, this should bring to mind Genesis and the Garden of Eden and God making Adam and Eve. Because when God made Adam and Eve... He made Adam and Eve to subdue the earth, to work the soil, and to put everything in subjection to themselves. Adam and Eve were commanded to make the world a beautiful place for the glory of God. And they were to be fruitful and multiply. And then their descendants were to make the world a beautiful place and subdue the earth and make it it beautiful for God's glory. But because of Adam and Eve's sin, that goal was frustrated. And now the world is full of sin and death. And that's what it says in verse 8. We do not yet see everything in subjection to man. So God originally designed it, but that's not what has happened now. Not, now not everything is in subjection to human beings. We don't rule over everything. We, we can't even control ourselves, right? The, the world is full of chaos and violence and evil. We, we can't even be in subjection to one another, much less the entire universe. We certainly, death certainly is not in subjection to us. Death rules over us. But one day, what the author is pointing to is that things will be the way they should be. And on the new earth, when Jesus returns, redeemed humanity will live in a world where everything will be the way God has intended it to be. In other words, Adam failed in his command to take care of the earth because he gave in to sin. So sin destroyed the calling, the vocation that God has given us, but Jesus has come to fix that. And when Jesus returns... Mankind will be like Adam and Eve before the fall. But it'll be, actually be even better because we can't fall at that point. So it, it'll be even better. So that's what he means when he said you put everything in subjection under his feet. And this is especially refer, referring to back in verse 5 when it says the world to come. So in the world to come, we will be under the authority of King Jesus. God's people will be under the authority of King Jesus. But we will have authority over the new earth. The author of Hebrews is also doing something else very important here, and it's actually very sophisticated. He's been talking about humanity in general from Psalm 8, but he's transitioning to talk about Jesus. And if you look back in verse 6, you see that phrase, son of man? That's the same phrase we saw back in Daniel I just looked at. Son of man can refer to humanity, to mankind, but it can also refer to Jesus. In fact, when Jesus talked about himself, the way he usually referred to himself was the Son of Man. So he called himself the Son of Man. So the author of Hebrews is subtly transitioning to talk about Jesus here. Back in Hebrews 1 verse 13, it says that Jesus will conquer all his enemies. It says, remember, we talked about this last week, that all of God's enemies will be like, will be like a footstool under the feet of Jesus. That's going to happen in the future. 
But here in Hebrews 2.8, it's saying that it's already been done. It's saying that everything already is in subjection to Jesus. Everything's already under his feet. So the question I would have is, which is it? Have all things already been put under the authority of Jesus? Or is there something that's going to happen in the future? And what the author is saying here is it's both. It's both. God has already placed everything under the Son's feet. That's what it says when he says, left nothing out of his control. Jesus, as I said, Jesus is already king, and he reigns over all. Christ's rule is already all-encompassing. But then at the end of 2.8, the author says, at present, we do, not, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Jesus. In other words, we don't yet see it. We don't see everything or everyone perfectly obeying Jesus right now. As I said, there's a lot of evil in the world, even on our own hearts. We don't obey Jesus perfectly right now. There's sin and rebellion. There's death. There's suffering. So we don't see everything in subjection to Christ right now. So there's a future aspect to this. Now, this would have been important to the original audience of the letter to the Hebrews because they were Jewish Christians who were suffering. They were under persecution. And they were asking this question. Why are we suffering so much? Why are we being persecuted? If, if all authorities, if all governments, if all rulers have been placed under Jesus' feet, if he rules over all, then why are we suffering? Hasn't God subjected all things to the Son? If so, why are we being persecuted? And we could ask the same question, right? If everything is under the control of Jesus, why do God's people suffer so much? And the author is answering that objection here. And he's saying, yes, Christ is king and he rules over all, but we haven't seen this fully accomplished yet. That's what it's saying in verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to Christ. So we as God's people need to remember that there's a tension. There's a tension between the now, between the already, and the future, the not yet. We need to remember that the reign of Christ is a reality. Jesus is the exalted king. It's a fact. He rules over all right now. But right now, it's mostly unseen by us. That's why he says we don't see it yet. And we won't see everything in subjection to Christ until he returns and makes all things right. In the world to come, when the kingdom of Christ comes in full, there won't be any more hospitals. You know that? There's not going to be any more hospitals. There won't be, because there won't be any more sickness. On the new earth, doctors and psychologists are going to have to find something else to do, right? Because there won't be a need for them. Lawyers like me will be out of business. There won't be, amen. There won't, <laughs> there won't be any more arguments or fights or lawsuits anymore. There's not going to be a need for lawyers. There won't be any more criminal trials. When Jesus returns, there won't be any more ministries to, to help abused kids. There won't be any ministries to help starving people. There won't be any funeral homes because death won't be any more. Jesus is going to make everything right when he returns. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Jesus is coming. That's guaranteed. And he proved that by his resurrection. He showed that. that he's already conquered grave and hell and death. But we believe that by faith, right? That's what faith is all about. We don't yet see it. That's what the author is saying here. We don't yet see everything in subjection to Jesus, but we still believe. We still confess. We believe with all our hearts that Jesus is king. 
But we must remember that the full impact of his rule won't happen until he returns. Our right, verse 9. It says, but we, so we don't see everything in subjection to him. But verse 9, it says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the first time the author of Hebrews has mentioned Jesus by name. And it's fitting that he mentions Jesus by name right here because he's going to talk about Jesus becoming a man and dying. He's going to talk about the humanity of Jesus. So right here the author is stressing Jesus' humanity, and that's why he uses his name here. I like, for this verse, I actually like the Holman Christian Standard version of this verse. I don't know if we have that, Josh. We got it? All right, very good. I like the way the, the phrasing of this is, and so I'm going to read it. It says, we, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and death. And just leave it up there. So again, I want you to think about this. Again, the author is saying we don't yet see everything in subjection to Christ, but we do see Jesus. We see him. How do we see him? We see him with eyes of faith. We see Jesus with spiritual eyes. We see him through faith. We see him what he has done in his earthly ministry, and we see him by faith. We see him right now exalted on the throne. And then it says that Jesus was made lower than the angels for a short time. So Jesus had to become man. He had to become lower than the angels in order to bring about our salvation. He had to become a man. He had to be made lower than the angels for a short time. Why? Why did Jesus have to become a man? It says right here, so that he would die, so that he might taste death. That phrase, taste death, that was a Jewish idiom, a saying. And it means not only die, but go through the horrifying process of dying. So Jesus had to taste death. He had to suffer and die. He had to go through the dying process. And notice it says this. It says he might taste death for everyone. I'm not going to get into a long discussion about, about the, this morning about who Jesus died for. But if you look in the next verse, if you look at Hebrews 2, 10, if you look in the next verse, it says, For it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. Bringing many sons to glory. It doesn't say in the cold context that Jesus is going to bring every single person in the history of the world into glory. It doesn't say that every single person will be saved. It says many sons or many people, not all people. So in verse 9, when it says that Jesus died for everyone, I think it means this. In the first century, Jewish people had a very difficult time thinking that God would save people beside Jews. They could not get over that. It was just shocking to them that God was going to save Gentiles and all these other people groups. So they, they would think to themselves, you're saying to me that God is not only going to save Jews, but he's going to save everyone, all kinds of people? That was very hard for first century Jewish people to believe. That Jesus died not only for people in Israel, but from people from every tribe and tongue. And I think, reading the whole thing in context, I think that's what the author is saying. When he says for everyone, I think it means for every type of person on the planet, for all tribes and tongues, for all types of people. 
So again, just in the context, I don't, this is me personally, this is what our church believes, we don't believe that Jesus died in the place of every single person throughout history. We believe that he died for his people. And then, because as I said also in, in verse 10, it says, in bringing many sons to glory. So anyway, that's the point about, uh, about dying for everyone. But the main, the main point of this is, is the word for. Jesus had to die for everyone. He had to die for humanity. He had to die in the place of us, for us, as our substitute. That's what it means to die for humanity. The Son of God had to become man because he had to die. That's why Jesus had to become a man. God can't die. That's why Jesus had to become a man. So the only way the Son of Man, the Son of God could die was by becoming a man. So Christ de- tasted death for you and for me. And the humiliation that Jesus endured as a suffering man who died, this humiliation only lasted for a little while. That's what it says, for a short time. So Jesus was made lower than the angels for a short time. But now Christ has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And as the verse says, he's been crowned with glory and honor. We saw the same thing in in Daniel. And look at the verse. It says, why has Jesus been crowned with glory and honor? Why has he been exalted? Why has Jesus been given this exalted place on the throne? Because of his suffering and death. After Jesus accomplished the work of his substitutionary death, he was crowned with glory and honor. The Father crowned Jesus with glory and honor because he accomplished the mission of saving his people through his suffering and death. And because Jesus humbled himself, the Father exalted him. And now Jesus sits on the throne and he will reign forever and ever. You see other places in Scripture where we see about Jesus being humbled and then being exalted. This is, this is uh, Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. It says the Father raised Jesus from the dead. He's, he's humiliated in the dead, in the earth, dead. It said he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We see the same thing in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So throughout Scripture, you see this picture of Jesus exalting and then the Father, I mean, Jesus humbling himself, becoming a man, and then then the Father exalting him to the place of honor. So as God's people, this is so important for us, as God's people, we're not ashamed of the cross. We're not ashamed of the cross of Christ. We aren't embarrassed by the cross because the cross exalts Christ. As a result of his humiliating death, the Father exalted Jesus in glory. And we will praise our Savior throughout eternity for going to the cross in our place. All right, that's the passage, okay? That's the the passage we're going to look at. I want to finish by talking about this little phrase back in verse 5. And I don't know if we have that, Josh, but it says this. It says, the world to come of which we are speaking. So look at that. Hebrews 2, verse 5. The author says, God subjected 
It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. That's a huge phrase. It's important for the writer of Hebrews, and it's so important for us as God's people to focus on the world to come. That's what he's saying. He's, I'm talking about the world to come here. That's what we're talking about, the world to come. He's saying that all these things, he said, you need, your focus needs to be on the world to come. A number, of time a number of times throughout Hebrews, we'll be encouraged to fix our eyes on the world to come, to wait for it with patience as we wait for Jesus to return and make everything right. For example, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, there's a hall of faith section. And it says, the heroes of the faith, and these were even Old Testament, even before Jesus came in the flesh. The Old Testament saints, it says that they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. They were looking forward to a better country, a heavenly one. They had their eyes fixed on heaven. They had their eyes fixed on the world to come. And the Lord is encouraging us as God's people to keep looking ahead, looking to the world to come. One of the habits, one of the virtues that we really need to develop is continuously looking to the world to come, to heaven, to our eternal home with the Lord. So the future aspect of salvation is so important for us. And, and God keeps on saying in the book of Hebrews, you must press on in faith, you must hold fast to Jesus, not because life on this earth is going to be amazing all the time. He's saying you don't press on in Jesus, not because everything in this life is always going to be wonderful and perfect. He's saying, no, you must believe by looking to the future, by looking to the day when Jesus will bring us into the eternal city of God, by looking for the world to come. We can't really live a life of faith in Jesus. We really can't live lives of obedience and fruitfulness. We can't live lives of faith unless we maintain this eternal perspective. You need a heavenly perspective. In other words, one, of the, one aspect of this is you need, as a believer, you need to become comfortable with, with your own death. In the next section of Hebrews, we'll look at next week, it's going to talk about Jesus delivering us from slavery to the fear of death. And we need not fear death because Jesus has defeated death. And one of the ways we overcome our fear of death is by fixing our eyes on the world to come. This is hard for us. It's hard for us because our eyes are naturally fixed on this world. And everything in this world around us screams at us all the time, telling us that this life is all there is. That's what our culture tells us, that this life is all there is. Almost on a daily basis, almost every image you see, it's telling you to spend all your energy on making this life as comfortable as possible. We expect to be happy at all times. Even celebrity pastors write books telling you to focus on getting your best life now. But many books, how many books out there tell you to focus on the world to come? Not many. But God wants you to do that. God wants you to develop the habit of thinking about the world to come. Because your best life is not now. It's in the world to come. My wife loves Southern gospel music, and she got me loving Southern gospel music. And one of the things, we were listening to it this morning, getting ready. And one of the things that's wonderful about those songs, especially older Southern gospel music, is there's a lot of focus on heaven. In the past, Christians used to think more about the world to come. I think of Pilgrim's Progress, if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. The pilgrim, Christian, on his way, he's on his way to the celestial city. And he's thinking about the celestial city all the time. And he's talking about the celestial city. 
we're called to do the same. And one of the things God does for us, may not be pleasant, but one of the things God does for us to help us fix our eyes on the world to come is by allowing us to go through suffering. One of the things you'll notice, and I bet you've seen this in your own life, is when Christians suffer, we have a tendency to get our eyes off our circumstances and we start to think more about heaven. When things are difficult, we long for our heavenly home, the world to come. When you think about family and friends who died in faith, your mind goes to heaven. You think about being reunited with loved ones. You think about the world to come. This also happens when you go through suffering. I remember, I've, I've, I've shared this before, I have a blood clotting disorder. I've been in the hospital a number of times with uh, deep vein thrombosis in my legs, these blood clots in my legs. And one, <laughs> it's funny now that I look back on it, but once I was in the hospital, I had this massive blood clot in my thigh, and I was in the ER, and they were giving me this treatment where they put this, this like microscopic thing into the vein, and they're trying to break apart the clot by putting this chemical, basically, in your blood, trying to break it apart. And I'm laying there in the ER, and it felt like my leg was on fire. It felt like it was a blowtorch on my leg. I mean, it hurt. So I'm just grip, clenching my teeth and, and just doing this. And it didn't go on for five minutes. This is like hours. I'm just like, like this. And they were trying to give me painkillers. They gave me morphine. Mor- get this, morphine didn't touch it. They gave me more. I couldn't feel it. I, I, I felt the same way. So they gave me, they gave me some painkiller, some massive painkiller. And finally, they, the nurse puts it in the IV, and I felt this, like, warmth go through my arm. And it went down my body, and I went, oh. And I just I felt so good. I felt like I was there for five seconds. The next thing I know, the nurse is waking me up, okay? She's going, wake up. And I was like, I finally got to sleep, and now you're waking me up. She, she told me, they were watching my heart rate, and my heart rate was doing this. Before they gave me, it was like, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. They gave me this medicine. It was like this, ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. And that's when she comes in and wakes me up. But at that moment, you know, like the old joke said, I was going through so much suffering. At that moment, like the joke said, I, at that moment, I was so afraid. I thought I was going to die. And then an even worse thought across my mind, that I was actually going to live. I was going to have to live with this. It was not going away. So, but, when, but during those times, my wife and I have talked about that. During those times when I've been in the hospital, I've longed for heaven. I'm, I'm saying, I'm ready to go. And that's okay, right? It, it's okay to fix. It's not like I had a death wish or anything. But I was saying, Lord, if you want to take me, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. And so that is one of the things that God does for us. He allows us to go through suffering to maintain an eternal perspective. And and if you've gone through suffering, you're going through it right now. I know some of you are going through terrible things right now. My prayer is that you'll you'll look to the Lord, you'll look to heaven, and it'll make you long for for the world to come in a real way. Because you know that Jesus is going to carry you into the eternal city, the world to come. He'll escort you home. Many times when we find ourselves thinking about and longing for a place of everlasting joy with Christ, to be with loved ones, to see our Lord with no pain or suffering. And I'll say this, if things are going great for you right now, praise the Lord. Thanksgiving's coming up. We should be people who thank God every day. My, really, my prayer is that we would be thankful people. We'd have eyes to see the way God blesses us on a daily basis. 
And also, I'd say this too, if, if your passion, but, but, but let's try to, to fix our eyes on the world to come. And if you find that your passion for the Lord is not what it used to be, one of the ways you can fix that is by thinking about the resurrection life to come. And that's what God wants for us, to really apply our faith. That's what it means to live by faith. Something else that, that I think can help you thinking about the world to come is this. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. You know what that means? It means that when we experience moments of joy and beauty, those come from the Lord. And something else to think about, those moments of beauty and joy are a foretaste of the world to come. They're a fourth, they're a little hint, a little glimpse of the world to come. Harry Blamires was a student of C.S. Lewis, and he said this. He said, it's in fragmentary glimpses that the joys of God's kingdom are flashed before our faces while we're on this earth. In other words, when you catch a glimpse of beauty and wonder and joy, what you're seeing is a glimpse of God's kingdom. You're seeing a glimpse of the kingdom that is coming in full one day. There's a scene in the play Our Town by Thornton Wilder, and the main character in the play is named Emily, and she's dying, and she's been given eyes to see just how wondrous ordinary life is. And she says this. She says, goodbye, world. Goodbye, Grover's Corners. That's the name of the town. Mama and Papa. Goodbye to clocks ticking and mama's sunflowers, and food, and coffee, and new iron dresses, and hot baths, and sleeping, and waking up. She said, oh earth, you're too wonderful for anybody to realize. And from a Christian's perspective, we know that these moments are a glimpse of the world to come. You've got these same memories, right? You've got these same, you're a kid. You're playing catch with your dad in the front yard. You're in the kitchen and you see your mom making supper. It's Christmas and you're a kid at me, mom, papa's house sitting at the kids' table with a house full of family. You're a teenager laughing with friends over something silly. You see your wife holding your baby for the first time. There's that time you came over the ridge. You saw that valley, and that memory just burned into your mind. First time you saw your baby smile. You see your kids or grandkids running into your arms. You listen to your child singing all by herself, just joyfully, and she doesn't know you're listening. You're sitting in a little church, and you're happy because you know your Savior loves you. Here's the wonderful truth. These glimpses of beauty and joy that we experience in this life, these are glimpses of God's kingdom breaking in. They're glimpses of heaven. It's the grace of God breaking into our lives. Every good and perfect gift is from above. They all come from God. So these brief moments of unspeakable joy and wonder that we experience in this life. You know what? They vanish quickly. Things go back to normal. Things just kind of resume. But they're brief glimpses. And they're a foretaste of the life to come. 
And here's the amazing thing. In the eternal city, those experiences of beauty and joy and wonder, they won't be brief glimpses. They'll be full. They'll be complete. They'll never end. My prayer is, my prayer is for us, as a little local church in Walton County, Georgia, is that we, when we experience these joyful things in our life, these moments of beauty and wonder, they will whet our appetite. They will make us hunger for the full joy that awaits us with Christ our Savior in the world to come. This is a song my wife and I were listening to this morning. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day. That will be. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die as our substitute, to taste death for us, your people. And thank you, Father, that you raised your son from the grave. Jesus, thank you for being the exalted king, and thank you that you rule and reign and Lord, I do pray that you would just help us as your people to get, when we get these glimpses of joy and beauty and wonder in our lives, that we will have eyes to see, see with eyes of faith, that these are glimpses of the world to come. It's real. You are real. Jesus, you are king. You reign, and you're returning one day. Maybe today. That'd be awesome. May we as your people look forward to your returning. May we long for heaven and may we fix our eyes on the world to come. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.